Hello, Bruce here. I hope you'll forgive me for interrupting the start of the episode, but I promise it'll be worth your while listening to this short message. Today's guest, Professor Donal O'Shea, was in SETU Waterford to present at an obesity seminar hosted by my amazing colleague Aoife Hearn. Donal graciously agreed to drive down extra early so we could record the podcast before heading over to deliver his talk, which was live streamed and is now available to view on the SETU YouTube channel. But wait, there's more. Donal was followed up by three superb speakers. Dr. Michael Crotty, GP and obesity medicine specialist, gave an impassioned presentation on evidence-based management of the chronic disease of obesity. Next, Dr. Andrew Grinnell, exercise physiologist, gave an excellent talk on reframing the role of exercise in the treatment of obesity. I found this one to be particularly interesting. Finally, the session concluded with registered dietitian Avine Bannon, who spoke about the importance of nutrition communication in obesity treatments. I am sure that this episode will spark some interest and leave you wanting more. Well, if you click on the show notes or head over to the ISESA website, you'll find links to each of the presentations I just mentioned to satisfy your curiosity. Okay, that's it. Back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and on this very cold and frosty January morning, I am happy to be in a warm studio recording live with Aoife Hearn, dietitian and lecturer here at the Southeast Technological University, and Professor Donal O'Shea, who is the National Clinical Lead for Obesity in Ireland. Aoife and Donal, you are very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great Thank to be here. Yeah. Uh, Donald, you're visiting us here today to talk uh, on the topic of understanding obesity. Why do we need to understand obesity? Do we still consider obesity to be a lifestyle illness? Um, unfortunately, 95% of people are of the view it's a lifestyle related condition. Um, 20 years ago, that would have been 995 so there's been a big change, but the vast majority of people are still looking at, at it as a lifestyle-related uh, pro- problem. Uh, the, the kind of banner for understanding obesity, uh, that, that kind of headline, uh, people who understand are more likely to survive. And that's whatever you talk about, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's cancer, whether it's, you know, safety on the roads. If you get it, you are more likely to be able to uh, deal with it and prevent it. And obesity is like that. We, we understand it better now. The science is there. It's not eat less, move more. That is the population prevention piece. But once you have the disease of obesity, you need treatment for the disease of obesity. And the medical community are increasingly getting that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but uh, the majority uh, and the, the, the general view is, I oh, look, honestly, if they could just eat less and move more, it would sort the problem. So what is it that we now understand about obesity that, ha- that is different? Well, how has the, 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 um, the definition of it changed or the approach to treatment started to change? So uh, the definition hasn't changed um, and won't change. It's a limited definition um, because you can be healthy at any weight. Uh, The BMI is a good population uh, measure, but it's not a good individual measure. Uh, And um, you've got 
uh, there's an understanding now that the defence against weight loss is a primal defence. Uh, and uh, an analogy that I'll use quite a lot is uh, people who give blood. So you can donate blood because you know that eight weeks later your blood count is back up to where it was. Exactly. And if for you that was a haemoglobin of 14.2, it's back to 14.2. If it was a haemoglobin of 15, it's 15. And you don't spend a minute in that eight weeks thinking about your haemoglobin. Your body has to get that store back up. So if you lose weight, which is a more primal store, uh, um, in evolutionary terms was there, energy storage was there before haemoglobin was even thought of, uh, then if you lose energy or weight, your body will bring it back up. And we're seeing that in all the studies that have been done on dietary interventions, the studies of patients of a bariatric surgery, they will lose weight for 18 months and then there's that effort by the body to bring you back up. So we understand that defence against weight loss. Uh, That, for me, should drive a massive population prevention piece. And uh, Aoife, you sent me a video (laughs) with with your kid Mm. looking at all the stuff uh, at eye level for a three-year-old. So when you understand that you must prevent, uh, that will drive prevention. Uh, But sometimes you have to accept it's a disease fully before you will energise the prevention. Eva, that video, I've seen that. Perhaps you might tell You've us about that. that. Yeah. yeah, so I brought my daughter um, into a local supermarket into the quick checkout um, and I gave her my phone as a camera and I wa- she just walked through uh, to see what she could see at eye level. I was really trying to demonstrate with my students because, you know, they, you know, it takes the heart to really understand. And it was un- it was crazy what she could see. It probably wasn't surprising to me, but what was surprising were the noises she made. She's like, yeah. ooh, ah. She w- zoned in on like the the juices and things that were really brightly coloured, you know. So, you know, that little child's mind is excited by all that colour, excited by cartoon characters on it, on these foods that are high in fat and sugar and really very little nutrition. But also it was all she could see. Like she couldn't see beyond anything else. And there was a lot of me saying no in that situation that I, you know, kind of cut out at the end and a tantrum then also at the end because she couldn't get these things. And, you know, like I suppose in that prevention piece, you know, as a parent, they are really challenging situations. And especially when you're tired and stressed at the end of the day, it is so easy to say yes. So there are many competing factors, you know, there as well. But it was really interesting and it really brings home, you know, the importance of what our children are seeing is really important and how they've been influenced. And part of understanding obesity is understanding that the food and drinks industry uh, designed the packaging uh, that's targeted at a three-year-old's visual, uh, you know, stimulation Mm -hmm. kind of radar, uh, designed the packaging specifically for a three-year-old, specifically for a five-year-old, specifically for a Mm nine-year-old. That's the packaging, Mm -hmm. let alone the bliss point that they work on to have a a, a taste and texture that will be suitable for a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old. And then they're placed at the eye level of a three-year-old, five-year-old and seven-year-old. Um, and then they're promoted through um, social media. Um, and on average, kids are getting devices now as young as six and they're 
having f about 30 food ads in one hour of viewing. Mm. That's shocking. It's incredible. Mm. <clears throat> I've noticed it with my own kids as well. Now, they, 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 they do use their tablets and they use the screens yeah. occasionally. And I, I would, I've kind of thought that because they're doing that, they're not getting as many ads as they would as they're watching actual television. Yeah. But they are much more familiar. Mm. Um, and they're because they're into sports and stuff like that. They keep, they keep mentioning Patty Power ads that they yeah, see because they're probably watching it on an adult account and they, they see gambling ads. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's frightening. It, it, and that's another industry. <laughs> yeah, separate uh, industry, uh, yes. Separately altogether. But, you know, again, it's the same strategies are used. So the companies are changing their name from, uh, you know, they don't talk about gambling. It's, it's Paddy Power. It's Betfred. I don't gamble. I just bet. Uh, <laughs> so gambling you're yes. addicted to. But betting's OK. Kay. It's just a mm. more a more frivolous kind yes. of, you're not addicted to betting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it, it's not true, obviously. Yeah, I think, and I think the point here is that none of this is by chance. You know, yes. there are a lot of people working really hard to want your three-year-old to pester you into eating or buying a certain food. Yeah. You know, none of that—they're not placed in a particular place in the supermarket by chance. You yeah. know, it is very strategic, I suppose. So we, we've kind of veered over into prevention, and we might circle back to, to treatment at the uh, towards the end. Um, so some of the things I was thinking about in terms of prevention of obesity. I know Aoife, we we spoke briefly about this in the office the other day. When do you guys think that prevention should begin, or prevention measures or interventions? When should they begin? Uh, my passionate view on that is transition year for those people who are going to be parents in 15, 10 years time. So you need to start thinking about the kids that are going to be born in 15 years time as your prevention start point. And the drive for that has to begin now uh, with our teenagers, educating them around the kind of issues we've discussed so they're aware of them. Uh, it's established that most girls have made a decision about whether they will breastfeed or not by the age of 12. They don't know that themselves, but it is set in stone. By the environment they have been surrounded by, they are either pro-breastfeeding and will do it, yeah. or they won't. Wow. Uh, so you have to get back so far <laughs> into, it's not, people say, in the antenatal class, too late. <laughs> you have to get into people's yeah. psyche and the psyche of, if you like, society now so we can prevent uh, with a star point of 2035. I know. <laughs> you know. You're really playing the long game here. It is, a long, it is absolutely a long game. That is even longer than the game you were playing. When we yeah, and I was that. And I do still think like pregnancy is a really important catch point as well. You Vital. know, uh, like and I suppose, you know, most women in Ireland don't ever get to talk to a dietitian in pregnancy even if they have gestational diabetes. So th there's a lot of work to do. And I think that's a really important point. But I think it's really interesting that by the age of 12, you've made decisions around how you're going to feed future children. That has such At a, a time, you're probably thinking, don't I don't even want, want children. children. <laughs> but you, know, you have already made yeah. that decision uh, that whether you will be a breastfeeder or, or not. not. And that determines a life's trajectory. Mm. Aoife, we had an interesting conversation. Well, what impact... Does can it have breastfeeding or not have on a on the potential for a person to develop overweight or obesity? We know that breastfeeding is hugely protective against people developing obesity, and and it's very clear that um, 
you know, supporting women and families to make that choice um, is really, really important one. And again, it really just helps, I suppose, you know, babies are born naturally knowing when they're full and when they stop eating. And it's really strengthening those internal cues. Um, we know that babies who are breastfed tend to grow kind of at a slower rate and a, a rate that we prefer. And um, and I suppose even introducing solids is another really important time that, you know, up until recently has kind of been left to industry to educate, which again is obviously an issue so you know these are definitely really important uh, important times but they're difficult decisions and we are living in a society in Ireland and a culture that is a bottle feeding culture for many reasons um, and you know when you break that cycle, cycle of breastfeeding being the normal way to feed a baby that impact has you know decades when that's broken it's very very difficult I think we know from growing up in Ireland study that women whose mother have breastfed them are something like 300 times more likely to breastfeed themselves so having the maternal um, grandmother as a breastfeeding supporter even if maybe she didn't do it herself is really really key and you know my mother battle fed me it was it was kind of the norm at the time there was no maternity leave you know back in the 70s and I remember when I was pregnant with my first baby I brought her a book by Ellen Satter a child of mine and I said mom I am doing this and I need your help and like most mothers are going to support their daughter you know so and she read it and you know she was a huge supporter huge supporter of me but we really need that but they again are really difficult conversations because there's a lot of emotion around maybe the choices you've made in those early days you know yeah and I think what you know one of the things uh, that that once people are educated about it, the start is the most difficult mm. but a, a lot of uh, women never find out that actually you can start expressing from about four weeks before you deliver so you can have a store of breast milk yeah. to get you over the difficult yeah. start up yeah. and look it doesn't work for everybody yeah. but if everybody goes into breastfeeding with a positive we'll make it work as best as we can mm. uh, then uh, that's the best possible start and and you know I'm my area is obesity and 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 there are there is evidence that uh, babies who are breastfed have a, a healthier weight trajectory through life uh, but for me that's only a part of it mm, yeah. uh, there's the emotional piece there is the uh, allergy eczema uh, general immune piece uh, there are so many benefits to uh, you know breastfeeding mm. that weight is just one of them yeah Absolutely. And, and and I suppose from a gut health perspective as well, you know, has massive impact. But I think, again, around this area, which it can be very emotive also, it comes back to, for me to informed consent. And what we're seeing now are people making decisions and they have not been given or don't have access to all the information. And it's almost the same around obesity treatment, I think, for me. You know, it is about people getting the information and making the best choice for them and their family and their situation. You know, like everyone does not want to breastfeed and that is a personal choice. But I think people need to know the choice. And we've kind of been set up that it's an equal choice. You either breastfeed or you battle feed and they're kind of the same. But, the you know, we know that is they're very, very different. And so we kind of I think that you know making informed choices is really really important and um, uh, you know I, I think informed choices are, are important I, I think the role uh, there's a kind of a narrative around at the moment which is that all voices are equal mm. and the the voice of a kind of an online influencer with a personal opinion that is either pro or anti is the same as the voice of a healthcare professional who has been 
A, in the game for 30 odd years uh, and B, is aware of all the literature and evidence that there is out there. So they're two, th- th- those voices should not be different. No. And the voice that informs should yeah. be the one that has the information. Yeah. Um, and that's not always the way in our society at the moment. We might stick with uh, prevention for the moment, but we might just jump forward a couple of years into the lifespan. Um, wh- what role does exercise play in prevention of, uh, of ob- obesity? So in the prevention of obesity, uh, I, I think I've always had this uh, kind of 70-30, uh, that it's 70% uh, nutrition and 30% physical activity. So physical activity, uh, movement, really important in uh, the prevention of obesity and really important in being healthy at any weight. Uh, So um, how you uh, build physical activity into the prevention space is, uh, you know, uh, how, uh, you know, people spend most of their time, young children spend most of their time at home not in school and in school they're doing uh, you know classes there are opportunities for activity and there are opportunities to increase activity in schools but it is what happens uh, in the uh, day to day the outside of uh, school the weekends Uh, you know what kind of activity can be built into their day how can we reduce the the tablet device time Mm -hmm. uh, and increase the just moving time um, and, and that's a, a big challenge. You put a seven year old out into uh, outside and they might moan for a couple of minutes yeah. and then they start playing. Uh, you put a 12 or 13 year old outside um, they'll moan and probably continue <laughs> to moan and <laughs> stage a sit in. So with it's a little easier with younger people. Uh, teenagers, I, I think it has to be more structured and, and what they like to do. But but the question needs to be, how do people like to move um, and, and uh, as opposed to what is your exercise regime? What is your physical activity regime? Well, that leads nicely into my next question, uh, just considering our environment and our ability to be active or to exercise or to move or to commute out of the car. Are there measures that you'd like to see implemented that make our environment more conducive to activity? I mean, anything that would improve, uh, you know, activity um, that, again, is in your day to day. So obviously limitations around uh, activity in school because of insurance. uh, That's still a thing. Yeah, it is. Many schools are not allowed to run in the playground because it's so big. There's so many kids and the insurance worries like... Uh, so I love the increasing number of greenways and, and, and that. But that's for recreational. It's weekend uh, and it really is the day to day stuff we need more of. So the ability to walk to school, the ability to cycle to school. Um, I don't like to stand on scooters. I know, <laughs> that, these that, electric scooters. But there's no activity on really. They're probably good for your kind of balance and a bit of Pilates, yeah. but they're not... <laughs> 
activity in in the way that we would have traditionally considered it. Yeah, I think I see a lot of people using them and they are great in certain circumstances, but I think there's a false sense that they're active <laughs> transport when they aren't you're just really standing still and yeah. you may as well be standing on a bus holding on to the yeah. to the, 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 the handrail. Mm. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, with the same because you're it's just about balance. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. mean you're you're I guess you're not sitting. That's about the only thing you yes. can say about the it's better than, everything's the better than sitting, everything's right? Better than sitting. <laughs> this should be a standing podcast. <laughs> yes. Well, we, in, in our Bruce office, has a standing desk standing at his desk. office. Good. <laughs> um, okay, so if we um, if we m- maybe veer back, if someone does develop overweight or obesity, how has or how is treatment or approaches to treatment changing? Um, so it changing in an incredibly exciting and dynamic way at the moment, uh, which for me uh, is an absolute tipping point uh, in how obesity will be viewed as a disease. So historically, um, many conditions which have been stigmatized um, have only been destigmatized and treated when it's been recognized actually it's a disease. So epilepsy was demonic possession. Uh, There was exorcisms that uh, did or did not work. and then people understood it was actually brain overactivity and there were treatments that involved possible medicine, possible surgery for some people. Uh, stomach ulcers were an inability to handle stress uh, and you smoked. Um, and then the Australians who kind of ate their helicobacter pylori and proved actually stomach ulcers are an infection for the majority of people. Immediate destigmatization, immediate screening for this infection and treatment. No stigma. We're now at a point where we have very effective treatments for the disease of obesity. And that will push people to say, OK, it's treatable, therefore it's a disease. So let's get on with identifying and treating. But we must also energize prevention. Mm because that will energize prevention. When people say it's a disease, we have to stop people getting Getting the the disease disease. of obesity. Mm. It's costly personally. It's costly financially uh, to the individual and to society. And it's costly to treat. So prevent. So I, I think that will drive it. And the treatments we have, we've had surgery for decades, but I suppose the overwhelming evidence of the effectiveness and safety of surgery, uh, you know, has uh, been, I suppose, loud and clear in the last decade. So we have to have surgery. It's the newer drug treatments that we have now based on our understanding of the drivers of obesity within the body uh, that are going to be game changing for individuals. They don't work for everybody, but that's like the start of any field you know 40 years ago we had crude treatment for blood pressure we now have very elegant array of of treatments um with many people requiring two or three different blood pressure treatments to get their blood pressure to target uh it will be similar in 40 years time with obesity and we'll be people will be sitting here saying that was a conference held here about <laughs> 40 years ago where they talked about understanding obesity and apparently there were no treatments or very little treatment then. 
Yeah. What is obesity? What was obesity? <laughs> yeah. So um, we might just explore that in a, a little bit deeper. So what is what, what do we now know um, about a person's perhaps genetic makeup and how their genetics, how their genes interact with their environment their, to, that, that, that drives obesity? So we used to always have this line, well, the genes haven't changed over the last uh, thousands of years and why do we have all this obesity? Well, uh, our genes have changed or the genes that we turn on and turn off have changed. So that field of epigenetics. Uh, so we're born with a particular gene profile, but what you do turns on genes and turns off genes. So physical activity turns on a whole load of genes. Uh, physical inactivity turns on a whole load of genes. Uh, what you eat changes uh, your uh, gene expression. So uh, we have uh, moved to a population that's sedentary, uh, energy excess, and that's changed our epigenetic uh, expression. Um, and uh, that's why we are where we are. We know that your weight uh, is, is 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 more genetically determined than your height, mm. which is incredible. Yeah. Uh, but we have a an environment that is is bringing out, if you like, a phenotype in terms of weight that was unthinkable uh, forty years ago. So forty years ago, if you walked down Grafton Street, uh, the only severe and complex obesity uh, pretty much was the American tourist. Yeah. with the braces and you would be looking going God that person is struggling mm. uh, now that's common in every town uh, in, in Ireland um, so that environment has brought out uh, the kind of uh, genetic predisposition that we all have to gain weight uh, and the treatments that we're uh, you know on the cusp of now uh, some of them target the genetic uh, cause. So when we're taking a story now from somebody with obesity, if their weight went on under the age of five, which is unusual even now, and they have red hair, then they're probably a melanocortin-4 receptor abnormality. And there is a treatment called setmelanotide, which will uh, get rid of their excess weight. Previously, those children have been taken out of their families by Tusla because they're not losing weight. You know, mad stuff. Oh my God. That's mad stuff. Hmm. Unbelievable. I, I'm, I'm sorry. <coughs> Take a word. I'm shocked. I was fascinated listening to what you were saying. That, that's shocking. Yeah, that, that it, like, when we talk about understanding obesity, yeah. I, have, I have sat with Tusla and social workers and have been saying... You cannot take this child away. You cannot say, if you have not lost weight by your next visit, we are taking you away from your family. I said, you can't say that anymore. We understand obesity better now. Obviously, there's a lot of news um, and content going around at the moment about medical uh, uh, drugs that can be taken out to, to, to help uh, treat people with obesity. One of the things I found interesting about those listening to the stories um, of people who had been taking them was how, for some people, it reduces the anxiety and the noise associated with their diets, that they are constantly thinking of food all the time. So again, it's something that was alien and possibly to a lot of people that thought that there's a lot of anxiety around it and that these medications can help them to manage that. So again, it, it brings 
to the front that the difficulty that some people have uh, in managing their in managing their diet, managing their nutritional needs, um, but that it's almost hardwired. It's very difficult. It's, it's so challenging to them. So, how what ben, what benefits do you think these new medications are bringing? Yeah. So these uh, the the so. There's the rare genetic causes mm-hmm. for, you know, that, that uh, and, and they're very particular treatments for kind of mainstream obesity, which is multifactorial, a bit of your genes, a bit of your environment, sleep vital in managing your weight properly, stress and stress management vital. So for that kind of multifactorial obesity, the, the newer treatments we're getting are based on the body's own uh, satiety, sense of fullness, uh, and, you know, if you think about satiety, uh, you know, a lot of people will kind of feel a bit drowsy after a meal even, uh, particularly Christmas Day. Everyone <laughs> conks out when you do eat too much. Uh, so and that's your gut hormone system, uh, which is releasing factors to make you feel a bit fuller, calmer. Uh, and that's where the kind of anxiety cravings piece come into it, because if you get a, a, this at the moment, the main one we're using would be a once weekly injection called Ozempic, which has been made very popular by mm. Elon Musk and the Kardashians, unfortunately. But if you're on uh, that uh, Ozempic, which is a gut hormone, uh, you, you feel a bit fuller, uh, you feel a bit calmer, you're less hungry, your cravings are less. It's even now being studied in gambling addiction. Yeah, I heard Because that of okay. uh, its role at reducing cravings mm. uh, and uh, people do worry about their next meal and what they're going to have and they worry about uh, will they be able to stop themselves uh, when they, they start eating and this drug helps with that. In in Lachlanstown we run a six week rehabilitation programme for patients with severe and complex obesity and uh, that programme is an inpatient programme. Uh, it's uh, two litres of low fat milk um, an oxo cube, a vitamin supplement, and an iron tablet. So it's nutritionally complete. It's eleven hundred kilocalories a day, which is tough. Yeah. Uh, so that's a glass of milk every two hours. But there's no choice or thinking about next meal. The p- patients are never hungry, and they come in, and the biggest fear they have coming in is they will be ravenous, and they're not hungry. And the reason, part of the reason they're not hungry is they're not having to think about their next meal. There's, it's completely boring. There's no thought. Uh, and that's not a regime we've made up. That's an yes. internationally validated 1100 kilocalorie uh, regime. Mm. Uh, so uh, thinking about your food uh, generates um, stimuli that in some people are quite linked to an- anxiety and worry. Yeah. Yep. Um, you've mentioned there a couple of times severe and complex obesity. Perhaps I should have asked this earlier on. What, what do you mean by severe and complex obesity? Um, so uh, obesity is defined as excess adipose tissue that has caused uh, ill health or uh, that is affecting your health. So you mentioned earlier you've spoken to Paul O'Connell. Uh, Paul O'Connell on a BMI scale would come in as probably 31 or 32 mm. and he's an elite athlete. Uh, but we don't have an epidemic of elite athletes. We have an epidemic of obesity and 95% of people living with obesity will not be super healthy. 
Many will be healthy if their BMI is 31 or 2 or 3. But severe and complex, uh, it relates to individuals who have a BMI that meets the criteria, but they have complications. And the complications are type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, blood pressure, sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, uh, very limited mobility uh, in in extreme cases. Uh, so we had one lady who came in and did that six-week program, 157.5 kilos at the start of it, leaving 157.5 kilos. Uh, car transfers better, mobility better, personal hygiene better, delighted. And she understood for the first time why her efforts over the years to lose weight mm had been uh, failed yeah. in a vertical commas. Yeah. She had failed, repeatedly mm. failed. That word failure is awful. Oh, and it actually, it breaks my heart, actually. And I was you hoping know? on Operation Transformation that we were going to have a patient when I was involved and I've stepped back uh, as well as you. I was hoping we'd have a patient who lost nothing through the six <laughs> yeah. weeks. To, just oh, to make the point. Yeah, I know. That, you know, uh, you most people can lose five to ten percent, um, but some people will will lose nothing despite every effort. Some people have yeah. their surgery and lose nothing. It's uh, you, I find that we can be very focused on weight as the the outcome measure. That if you are not losing weight, then you like you say you're failing, and, and mm. that can be setting people up for failure from the very very beginning uh, with that mindset. Um, and can I, on that, I'm embarrassed to say that on our weight management inpatient program, uh, it's only last year that we stopped weighing the patients. So we've stopped weighing the patients now. Uh, we used to weigh them weekly on a Friday. <laughs> and if they were gutted, we were gone away for the weekend, know, uh, you know, and they know. were their families were texting in. What's this week's result? You know, uh, so but that comes with understanding obesity mm. Mm. but but we're you know we've been in it for a long time and we're only we're still evolving our thinking yeah. and the way we need to uh, address the problem yeah. um we we kind of mentioned a couple of times about people who can be ha- having health at uh, I won't say any size at many sizes i think was the phrase you used earlier on um so uh, is it true that a person, you know, we, we can have, you can be healthy um, at many weights, but for each, at an individual level, there's going to be a tipping point where if you gain an excess amount of weight, that some of these health complications are inevitable? Um, I, I think uh, that is correct. There, There is a, a point. Um, so the, the severity can relate to different things. Uh, so if you are let's say, take away to 160 kilograms, uh, that is going to take its toll on back, hips, knees, even if you don't have, if you're metabolically healthy, your blood yeah. pressure is good, your cholesterol is good, um, and the, all that's fine. But uh, it's going to take its toll on your sleep-disordered breathing, you know, um, because because it has to at a particular point. There are some people who are you know, we'll have a BMI of, of 31 or 32, uh, which, you know, is looks pretty normal in this society. And we'll have type 2 diabetes and sleep apnea. Uh, so you can have severe and complex obesity at a low BMI and you can have relatively uncomplicated obesity at a higher BMI. And the treatments we're using uh, in the medical sense, we're using for severe and complex obesity. 
if if you have obesity but you don't have any other medical complications, then that doesn't, from a medical perspective, need treatment. Yeah. Uh, if you want treatment, uh, that's that's a different thing, and and part of the whole problem we have at the moment is there's lots of people who have a BMI twenty eight want to be BMI twenty two, and are prepared to go to Turkey and and have yeah. surgery for that. Yeah. We've talked a lot about, um, well, we've mentioned uh, surgery and medication as treatment. I'm kind of picturing it almost like our high-performance athletes. That's at the top end of the pyramid there. Below that, what are the other treatment strategies that can be implemented uh, for someone with overweight or obesity? Well, I suppose, like, really in the prevention piece, our lifestyle matters, doesn't it? You know, and getting, I suppose, having... healthier habits with regards our eating and moving matter there and I think you know this discussion around medication sometimes I think what the public hear is oh take a pill and you don't have to worry about it and that's absolutely not what any health professional in this area is saying you know there is huge value in eating well for many things not not just about weight and I think detangling that and pulling it apart is really important and moving value on many many levels that has nothing to do with weight so I suppose when we think about almost maybe pre-obesity or prevention of obesity we're really looking at these good habits for people you know we're really trying to support people to eat well live well feel that they can live their best life you know and that involves being able to engage in activities being able to go to your doctor and feel comfortable with that be able to go out and eat a meal with your family and friends enjoy food eat too much sometimes you know uh, and that being a normal part of living without maybe all of that self-judgment self-hate and you know uh, berating over those things so I suppose it is around trying to move away from this kind of diet culture of certain food rules and this idea that you know really many foods can be part of your normal day and we can enjoy sometimes foods again sometimes and enjoy those you know so I suppose my concern is that we are still trying trying to teach people to eat well through a focus of good food, bad food. And I don't think that is really going to help down the line, you know. Yeah, I like that approach where we talk about sometimes foods as opposed to bad foods, mm. because realistically, and we bring it back to the environment that we live in, it's too it's too difficult to avoid what we, we traditionally or normally think of as bad foods. But it is OK to include uh, sometimes foods. Yeah, and I think I suppose part of that is, you know, that education piece, even for people around how these foods are engineered and why it is difficult to stop eating certain foods, you know. So, again, you know, there's a huge body of work, I suppose, to inform the public, inform teenagers, you know, so that when they get older, they get it, you know. So, um, again, none of this thing, none of these things happen by chance, you know, like potato chips and especially ones that are flavoured, like that flavour and coating is on the outside often, isn't it to really excite your taste buds and that's not by chance you know these things are made in a way to want to bypass those internal feelings of fullness so we you know again it's trying to get people back to these internal cues um, for parents to understand what that is so when we talk about it being multifactorial and complex it, it, it really it, the tentacles are so wide aren't they into mm-hmm. like every aspect you I know, know. We, we tend to like things to be binary you yes. know exactly. eat less move more that'll yeah, solve perfect. the problem yes. or we need to prevent and we need to treat at the same time but really 
that prevention and treatment, the more I think about it, it is, it's is—it's a circle of complex, small interventions that need to come from yeah, all angles. From all angles. From government down and from individuals up. And and from industry. So I had a call early, earlier in the week with Kerry Group, um, which are one of Ireland's biggest food exporters and manufacturers. Uh, they are very con- concerned about the emergence of these, uh, in inverted commas, anti-obesity treatments and what it might do to their product profile and how should they begin to think about positioning their products to deal with an era where there will be obesity treatments that will be impacting on cravings and impacting on portion size. Mm. And they approached me. That's the first time the food industry have approached me uh, in about 15 years. And the last time it was Coca-Cola to tell me that they no longer were promoting in any way, shape or form to under 12s. (laughs) And that was then their corporate position at the same time as they were putting names Names. on all the bottles. Uh, we are getting on on time. I just want to finish up perhaps and, and getting a sense, you know, we need to take a lifelong treatment approach. We need to optimise our nutrition. We need to opt- optimise our activity and exercise levels for many reasons, not just for weight. Uh, but for some of the listeners um, of this podcast, what messages would you like current students of sport and exercise science or nutrition and exercise science or professionals that are working in that area uh, what do you think they need to hear in order to be better equipped to help work with people who are living with overweight or obesity I'll go first yeah I do absolutely (laughs) Uh, the first thing uh, I would say is uh, don't judge Uh, the second thing would be ask permission Uh, is it okay if we discuss your weight? Uh, Because the individual or a person they're dealing with is thinking about it probably every day, if not more more often, uh, and is looking to talk about it. Uh, Having said, is it okay if we discuss your weight? Uh, Then the next question should be, uh, where are you on your weight journey at the moment? Because many individuals will uh, try to kind of shape up before they go to see their GP or their uh, physical, uh, you know, uh, activity instructor. So they'll have lost a couple of pounds uh, in the week or two before. Uh, so they'll say, well, actually, I'm, I'm down uh, about two pounds. Uh, and that's the opportunity to go. Well, that's fantastic, actually, because our goal in this day and age is to keep the weight steady, actually, because we understand it better now and we understand the defences against losing weight so our goal is to stop it going up and keeping it steady and you're already doing better than that and then you're into a positive so many people have a negative with healthcare. you need to lose a bit of that belly mm. uh, look if you lost a few pounds and they've already done that before they've come to see you so ask permission uh, never assume uh, and then say, look, we understand it so much better. So let's have realistic targets. Excellent. Aoife? Yeah, I think that piece of making no assumptions and you kind of have to challenge your own bias a little bit. You know, I think we maybe all make assumptions, maybe. And, you know, I say to my students, I say to my family, like other people's weight is none of your business. 
Like there's no need to comment on it. And I think, I don't know if it's an Irish thing, but it kind of just becomes second nature that people comment on other people's bodies, you know? So I'm really kind of, when I talk to my, especially my kids, like I'll tell you a funny story. My, my uh, five-year-old came home from school and he was, <clears throat> he's like, mommy, someone used the F word today. And I said, oh my God. And, he, and I was like, what did they say? And he was like, they said fat. You know, so, but again, I suppose, you know, I'm really trying to get them like, that's nothing to do with you. We don't talk about that. You know, that doesn't matter. You know, what we're actually doing is important. And I think, you know, really meeting people where they're at. And I think for, you know, many people who maybe want to make change to their eating, like, that's okay. I think, you know, if you want to change your weight, that's also okay. But we need to figure out what's not working and how can we make that better. So often when I work with people, I actually don't even talk about food we talk about the habits behaviors when they're doing their shopping how they're doing their shopping what they're doing when the shopping comes into the house where does it go how often are they cooking like because if we make that if we make cooking easier and we make kind of whole foods and real foods the obvious choice that's going to help your health you know so I think they're the things behaviour is important and focusing less on food actually and more on our habits and behaviours I think would be a really positive um, move also Excellent and I think then just to to, to close out I I think what what you mentioned about weight maintenance there I think that exercise and activity has a very important role to play in weight maintenance not focusing on weight loss but just and then to add in that culture where yes we are uh, seeking um, uh, consent from people to discuss these things we're making uh, the choices easier for them and then we're creating a culture where they can buy in and feel personal response ownership rather personal ownership over the decisions and actions that they're taking Mm -hmm. in order to try and help them uh, live uh, healthily and live well and not focus so much on the weight yeah it, it is that subtle difference about being in charge of your choices rather than feeling you need to be in control of them and I think that subtlety often really helps people when they really think about what they're doing in their day to day life and, and the biggest amount of work we have to do with people living with severe and complex obesity uh, attending our service is to stop them judging themselves and hating themselves Mm. so the compassion focused therapy that we do has changed uh, some people's lives when their weight hasn't budged Uh, and and that lady I referred to who shed nothing but understood for the first time why uh, it had been so difficult for her all her life um, she stopped hating herself Mm. so if, if we can get people to that point then your life's journey is it's a much happier journey. Guys, we are actually out of time. I would love to sit here and, and continue to talk about this. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, I'm very grateful to you both for giving up your time this morning to speak with me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you.